Welcome back to the Colorado Switchblade. It is a misty, cold end to our holiday season here in Estes Park. Did you have a good holiday? I did. It was very low-key. I, uh, well, kind of. It was very low-key in places <laughs> during the actual holiday days. We kind of just stayed in town and did a small Christmas uh me and my girls, and um, we uh, went down to Fort Collins for a little bit, did like a family photo shoot that we do every year. I mean, this this tradition started back when uh, I was like in junior high, and we'd go to the mall, and they'd find like some, like, you know, country crock, or not country crock, um, uh, what was it called? Pepperidge Farm. Remember the old Pepperidge Farm stores that were in the mall? And like, of course, my parents like dressed us up and made us wear Hawaiian shirts and and um, Santa Claus hats. And then we would all go to the mall and then get some random, you know, bystander to take our family pictures that we send out every year. And um, so it's evolved from that. Of course, you know, when you were doing that, all of every kid that knows you, all the cool kids at school, like they they're at the mall, like they 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 see this happening, this, this crazy family parade to the uh, Pepperidge farm store. And uh, so the, the new evolution of that is uh, we went downtown to old town, Fort Collins. And of course we, we have, you know, a professional photographer now. And um, you know, the last few years we've done it in photo studios and whatnot. And the, the pictures turn out great, but you know, we do like little family pictures in the alleys or right down there in old town. So did that. What else? Uh, I was on right before Christmas, like the week leading up to Christmas. I was on MSNBC and MS and CNN, like five different shows. Um, of course, it's always like you know the the morning, you know, which it, if you're on the CNN morning show, that starts at six a.m. Eastern, which is of course four in the morning here in Mountain Zone. And uh, so you're waking up at like 3.30. And of course, I had done like 11th hour the night before, which is, you know, the end of the news cycle. And then you got to do the late show later on that night. So it's just always like the very beginning and very end of the night. But, you know, I, that's 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 all tamped down. I think it'll be that way for a while. Um, well, I don't know. The anniversary for January 6th is coming up here real quick. Um, but so far this week, I'm, I'm going to be doing an interview with um, the Post-Gazette um, Pitts, out of Pittsburgh. And one of the, one of the uh, guys that will be interviewing with me, um, or interviewing me specifically, uh, has won two different Pulitzers on two different occasions. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, new uh, full-length feature piece profile came out. I'll include a, a quick picture of the spread. Um, in the Washingtonian magazine, that turned out really great. As soon as they have that up online, I will go ahead and post it for you. So today we're going to, um, first thing I'm going to do is just do a little, I, I woke up this morning and watched some documentaries and just, you know, it's, it's day two of 2023. And so I thought it would be, um, a good time to talk about the, the previous year and just the things I got going on. So I wrote a little piece on it. And uh, I thought it would be good to read. So I'm going to read that audio essay, I guess is what it would be. Um, 
And then after that, we are going to go ahead and um, I think this is probably one of my favorite interviews of 2022. I didn't post it yet, um, so it'll be brand new to all of you. But it's an interview with a local guy who, um, his name is Mike Dunn, and he's a local educator here in the Estes Valley community, but he's got more than 15 years experience uh, working with independent, progressive, public charter schools, outdoor schools. He's been doing it for 15 years. And um, I first ran into Mike at the um, the school board, the board of education meeting um, a month or two back. And uh, he was just so well-spoken and I just knew I had to get him on. He's actually a podcaster. He's got um, a great uh, podcast that's got um, God, how many episodes? It's like 50 episodes, 51 episodes. Um, and it's all about education. And he's, he's talking with people, um, and that, that are in the front lines, uh, on the front lines, in the trenches. Um, the podcast is called Rethinking EDU. And, um, I'll put a link into that as well, but we're going to have a, a talk with, with Mike Dunn because he's very, very qualified to speak on these topics that surround the um the possible charter school that's going on and we have a great discussion about because you know the charter school is going to be a, a classical education and i'm using air quotes there um, but we break down like what is a classical education what does that mean does this school really fit within that realm um this this school possibility and uh, just his thoughts on what it means to have a charter school competing with one public school um, here in Estes Park, that being the the conglomerate of the Estes Park Elementary, Middle School, and High School, so thought it would be a great time to to put this podcast out as we're we're getting through the holiday season and beginning to reengage in life, and we're going to have more meetings on the the charter school application, um, and we also talk about what you can do if if uh, if you want to have your voice heard one way or the other uh, by the Board of Education um, here in Estes Park. So that's what we've got for you today. Um, and for a quick preview, we are going to have, uh, I'm going to be talking with uh, a local citizen tomorrow. I've got the interview set up after I talk with the, uh, the journalists that are interviewing me. But um, Denver is kind of in a crisis right now with some of the immigrants that are coming from the uh, southern border um, that are being bussed out everywhere. And um, they're asking local communities for help. And one local here in Estes Park um, has reached out to, to local government and feels like he's not being heard with, you know, we're, we're in a surplus right now. We're doing really well financially as a town. And we have a lot of hotel rooms that are open right now and a lot of spaces, um, you know, whether that be the, the convention center or whatnot, community center. Um, he feels that we should be doing our part that, you know, when we had our fires and the whole town had to be evacuated out, you know, the Larimer County and um, down towards Denver were really good about putting us up as a community, just no questions asked. And and he feels we should be giving back to that. And he feels so strongly about it. He's going on a hunger strike today. He's on day two of that hunger strike and uh, wanting to bring attention to it. So we have an exclusive interview with him tomorrow. And uh, so 
hopefully we'll have that out Wednesday for you all to hear about um, just some of the issues and why this this man was uh, was motivated to to uh, use his own body to to try to get um, a conversation started in our community about um, what is happening down in Denver and how we may be able to help here in the Estes Valley. So um, that should be a great interview as well. He's someone that's been on the show quite a bit previous and um, people always like when we, we have him on. That's all I'm going to say about it right now. So, um, so for now, let's go ahead and move into my audio essay, Stepping into 2023. Twenty twenty two has been a strange year for me, and one that has run nonstop since before last year's New Year even hit the scene. This new year doesn't likely slow down for me anytime soon, so I tried my best to take the holidays a little slower. That didn't work out so well, as the universe had other plans. However, it does look like I will at least have a lull before February when my new book hits the bookshelves. I will have a media book tour in the middle of February. This will most likely be on the East Coast, here in Colorado, and maybe a few spots on the West Coast. But who knows? It may wind up being via Zoom, primarily out of my living room. This year has been strange for us all, but we carry on. I think politically, we have seen the beginning of a return to rejecting lunacy that has haunted us over the past several years. But there's still work to do. I watched an inspiring documentary this morning that spoke to my soul in my moment in time. It is based on Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Meekham's 2018 book, The Soul of America. It seeks to illuminate our present-day fraught political reality by exploring historical challenges, including the women's suffrage movement, the incarceration of Japanese Americans, McCarthyism, and the fight for civil rights. If you have yet to see the documentary, which is available to stream on HBO Max or read the book, I suggest checking out both. One thing I have made time to do over the past year is read plenty. It has been a continued year of writing for me, and I must also be read just as much as I am writing. I am not always successful at finding the time to read, but this year wasn't bad. During the pandemic, I started writing full-time, and the universe is taking me up on the offer. It was the best decision I have made so far in my professional life. In this endeavor to read, I have, as I do every year, reread Stephen King's On Writing. Some of the more memorable books I have read over the past year have been President Barack Obama's A Promised Land. Over the holiday, I found a book Another book that is currently also speaking to my soul on the topic of life, the universe, and everything else, entitled The Grand Biocentric Design, authored by Robert Lanza, Bob Berman, and Mecha Abzik. I've always said that conscious life seems to have some way of informing or manifesting reality. This book takes a quantum mechanics approach to that line of thought. You may not know these authors off the top of your head, 
but you have probably heard a story inspired by one of them or watched it. Robert Lanza is the person whose life story inspired the movie Goodwill Hunting. I also rounded out this year's book reading with more Philip K. Dick's short stories. My first literary love for writing will always be fiction. It is what I produce every day. However, it is much slower for me to get out there. Now that I am just waiting on the release of My Perils of Extremism, I still feel my original title is better, The Propagandist. I've been working on my new fiction novel. This one is not based on a supernatural world. but rather a world that I think our world may look like in 15 years or so, if things keep moving towards the worst-case scenarios. The working title is The End of Us, but I'm pretty sure it'll change. I'm currently roughly 10 chapters in. The story starts like a cyberpunk thriller, but quickly finds itself wading into what many would think of as a Western. We will see how it goes, but I think it's a timely story that deals with the repercussions of many of the issues we are now grappling with as a country and how we might eventually overcome some of our tribal division through human connection. My literary agent has agreed to pitch it to major publishers. She will also be trying to find a significant publishing homes for my supernatural fiction series, Colorado's Chance, which I self-published during the pandemic without an editor, a mistake I hope to never repeat. I am a halfway decent storyteller. I am not an editor. The new year may also bring an entree into writing and producing documentary films slash series. I have two studios I have been brainstorming with. However, with the current shifts in Hollywood, I'm not holding my breath that anything will manifest. Though I hope they do. I plan to continue doing what I've done over the past several years. Just keep writing every day. And I hope that you and yours have a better new year than last year, however it may have been. All right, that was my audio essay for the new year. All right, so uh, let's just, we're going to jump into this interview. Before we do that, I want to take the time to uh, thank my sponsors, the Historic Park Theater and the Real Mountain Theater, both here in Estes Park. Uh, man, now's the time to be watching movies in the evening with uh, all the snow and weather. If you're going to get out, get into the movies is a, a great place. We always have this, uh, well, we all want to stay in, but at the same time, we go a little stir crazy. We get a little cabin fever. And I, I tell you what, the movie theater for me is is certainly my refuge to get away from. And it's warm and dry. So, uh, yeah, check out the uh, Real Mountain Theater and the Historic Park Theater. You can click on the, the banners at the bottom of the show notes. All right. So, once again, we're going to be uh, having a talk with Mr. Mike Dunn. And um, kind of already introduced him beforehand. So, we're just going to go ahead and jump into this interview and um, have a discussion about uh, local education, charter schools, classical education, 
and kind of all of the um, the issues surrounding the upcoming decision by the Estes Valley Board of Education, um, their, uh, the Estes Park Board of Education, the school district, and whether or not they're going to accept uh, the application for a new charter school. So let's just jump right into that. We are here today with Mike Dunn, who I originally met um, after he spoke at one of the uh, Board of Education meetings here in Estes Park. And I, I I knew as soon as he started talking that he was someone that I wanted to, to connect with and, and kind of get his view on what is happening here. Mike, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come on and, and talk about something as exciting as school board meetings. Um, <laughs> but please, Jason, I'm happy, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so please introduce yourself to, to uh, my listening audience and, and tell us kind of what you, why you are concerned about uh, this, what's happening with the school board here in the SS Valley. Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, uh, you don't often get asked to come onto podcasts and talk about school board uh, happenings, especially in a small town of what sixty five hundred, like Estes Park, right? Yeah. But um, I'm happy to do so, and I think that um, you know, my background in my work uh, in education has been pretty longstanding. It's uh, you don't end up in education just on a whim, um, and maybe if you do. Uh, and you really love it, you stay for a long time. But most educators I know that are here and in it and sticking with the job for a, a while consider it their life's work. And, and uh, that is true for me too. You know, I've been uh, in various schools um, for 16 years now. And as a teacher, as uh, you know, a school team leader, um, as a coach, as a mentor, um, and all that time has been mostly working with high school students. Uh, as as we mentioned when we were um, starting off this episode, I, I taught middle school for a couple years, but that wasn't my wasn't my thing. And uh, you know, bless all the middle school teachers out there, that wasn't for me. But high school is is where it's at for me. And so I've been working with high school kids for a while. And um, I think local local schools are uh, amazing, important institutions uh, that are are responsive to their communities and serve an incredibly important um, need, not only in localities, but uh, for us as a nation, right? We have to have an educated electorate in order for us to uh, be doing the things we want to do with our democracy. And if that's the case, then um, public schools uh, remain fundamental to our mission as a nation and to uh, my work as a as a human being uh, and a citizen of the United States. So that's sort of why I'm here, and that's sort of why I ventured to that board meeting where you and I met um, is really to talk about um, what's going on here in our little district and why uh, what's going on here is so important for us as citizens and residents of Estes to be aware of and to be considering quite closely. Sure. So what really what concerns you enough with what you saw happening um, that made you come? At, I mean, you're fairly new to town, right? Sure. Yeah. I've been living in Estes now for about um, a year and a half, year and a third or so. Right. And and you you decided that this was important enough of an issue to go and, and speak. So tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. the motivation there. What what inspired you to go speak to the school board? Yeah, yeah. I 
The meeting that I was at specifically, we were, uh, the school board was hearing testimony from citizens around, uh, or from residents, I should say, around um, around the application of a charter school here in Estes. And the charter school would be um, governed by a group of schools down in Loveland, which is close by, um, called the Loveland Classical School, right, or LCS. And so the charter school would be coming to Estes, providing an option for parents um, to uh, give their kids a different kind of learning than they would receive in the in Estes Park uh, School District. Um, and that, I think, I think there's like a couple things concerning there, right? First is that the Loveland Classical School uh, model is concerning. Um, second is we're in a very small school district, right? So any kind of budgetary nudge within our school district could have catastrophic effects for the existence of our school district, the pay of our teachers who are already underpaid, and just the functioning of the existing, you know, facilities and programs that we have. Um, and then I think the third thing is, it, I, you know, I keep up with our local news um, pretty regularly. I try to read the Estes Park News or the Estes Park Trail Gazette once a week or so, maybe twice a week if, if I'm feeling ambitious. And I, uh, you know, noticed this story and noticed that um, this charter school group had not even really done adequate research in understanding the need for uh, such a school in our small district. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? You know, <laughs> like, who is this group? What kind of what kind of promotion are they trying to have within our district? And um, I guess I say all of that because I want to be clear about something. I'm not opposed to school choice for families, right? If there's a demonstrated strong need for school choice in a certain area, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. You know, if they if they were to come into Estes and say, we've got 300 families that are interested in attending our school and we only have 100 spots, there's a clear demonstrated need here. But they didn't even find enough families interested to propose 50% enrollment. And so to then be proposing this school that you're going to open up that's going to be fiscally underwater, number one, and number two, taking away, you know, 800,000 to a million dollars in revenue yeah. from the from the regular school district is really, really troubling and sort of insulting to me as a taxpayer in the in the in the Estes area. Absolutely. Um, so. And, and And real quick, let's just jump back a little bit. Tell us about your educational background, because I think that kind of Sure. Helps us to understand who you are and, and why your thoughts um, should be listened to, possibly. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I brush over it because uh, I don't I don't know that I necessarily think about myself in that way, but um, I'm happy to share with the listeners. You know, I studied history as an undergrad um, student many years ago, um, completed my master's in teaching um, I don't know, maybe about a, a, just about over a decade ago, and then also have a doctorate in uh, education leadership. Um, so Dr. Mike, 
nobody calls me that, but <laughs> I guess I'm going to call you that from now on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Students are like, what Dr. Mike? No, I don't think so. <laughs> and are you currently teaching here in the SS Valley or what are you? Yeah. So my, my work here in Estes really centers on helping students uh, figure out what they want to do after uh, they graduate from high school. Um, and so uh, I work with kids around the country doing that work. And um, it's super rewarding. Uh, you know, when a kid figures out a path that they have and they get laser focused on that path, it, you know, there's there's nothing like it. Seeing a, seeing a young person light up about their future. And so I really, um, I really enjoy that work. Absolutely. Well, thank you for doing it. Um, so I guess, can we talk about kind of what a, a private charter school is? Um, and, and specifically, um, maybe you can help me understand more what, like when they say a classical education, because that's kind of what they're using to, to sell this. Can you kind mm -hmm. of explain to us how, what we might see in a Loveland classical um, you know, branch here in Estes Park is going to be different than um, your typical public school education. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So to answer your first question, a charter school is essentially an authorized education provider. Um, the authorizer varies state by state. Um, and I don't 100% know how the authorization process works here in Colorado. Um, I do know some things about it, though that would be useful for listeners. First is that the um, charter proposal needs to go through the local school district and the board needs to approve or not approve that uh, proposal. So here we were at the meeting listening um, to folks talk about it, uh, talk about the proposal specifically because the board has a, a certain amount of time that it can grapple with the proposal given, and then it needs to respond back to the proposal to the to the governing organization. The structure of a charter is such that it, every student who um, comes to the charter is gonna get public funding, right? In this case, the, the funding model looks roughly like $10,000 a student. So if a student were to be going to Estes Park High School, they would then unenroll from Estes Park High School, enroll in Loveland, classical school and uh well sorry i guess in this case it's a k-8 school right so so you're in sixth grade you unenroll from estes park middle school you enroll in uh, Loveland classical school here in estes and that ten thousand dollars then follows you from your public school to a private to not private but to the charter school it's a little different than a private school right so if you are attending sixth grade in Estes High or Estes Middle School, and you just don't attend and go to a private school, um, then your taxpayer money uh, it does not follow you, right? There's no voucher process here in um, in Colorado, but that money then would follow you to the charter school because the charter school is technically a public option. In order to earn admission to a charter school, there's usually an application and a lottery process. So in this case, Loveland Classical School would have a lottery process for students to get admitted. You'd apply, your name's picked out of a hat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I don't know a ton about the admissions processes for Loveland Classical School specifically, um, but that's, that 
information is certainly available on their website. Other folks can kind of do that research. Um, and so there could be a combination of, of homeschool students that are already here in the Estes Valley and public school students that could come together and go to the Loveland Classical School. Um, the the challenge with homeschool students is that that money is already not going to the district. So then if that money comes, that money will come from the state and go directly to the charter school and, and uh, help fund that student. Uh, but every student that leaves the public school in Estes Park and goes to the charter school, that, that is $10,000 lost from the public school, right? Um, and I think that's sort of where your the first major sticking point is. Estes Park School District has a rough revenue of about 14 to $15 million, okay? And um, if you take away 100000 to a $1 million of that revenue, you know, what's going to get cut? Right. Certainly not the certainly not going to be the buildings. The buildings are going to stay. It's certainly not going to be the grounds, any sort of facilities, probably not going to be technology. And so the first area to get cut, and this is just me projecting here. I don't know if this would be the case, but the first area to get cut is likely to be teachers. Yeah. Um, and so the challenge there for me is Estes Park already has a small teaching group, you know, and second. It's crazy unaffordable to live here in Estes, as you know. Yeah. And so to get a teacher to commit to either driving up the hill from Loveland or Lyons every day or to live in town to then be a teacher at our school is very hard. Well, there's so, just no housing at all. I mean, even if you have money, yeah. it's very difficult to just find a place. And that's affected not only our teacher base, but law enforcement, medical staff, just you know, the Correct. people we need to run town. So yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. So the 800000 to a million dollar budget cut that could happen, a million dollars would be very high. That would be assuming that every student filled up the charter school. Their, their projected uh, sustainable enrollment is about 100. So if you got every student to un uh, of the 100 that are necessary, you got every student to unenroll from the public school to go enroll into the charter school, that would be your, you know, million dollar budget, but that would be very high. I don't know that that would be uh, what Estes would be losing. I'd imagine they would lose somewhere in the 800 to whatever thousand dollar range. Um, so, so that's one of the reasons why I think like consideration of this is, is super important um, just from a financial perspective. Um, your second question was about the the curriculum. Yeah, like when uh, they talk about a, what a class it, that it's a classical education. I think, including myself, a lot of people out there may not know exactly what that means. I mean, it to me it brings up thoughts of you know studying of the the Greek philosophers and such. But yeah. I, I really don't know, and I think a lot of people really don't know. Can you explain to us what what a classical education in the sense that they're talking about is? Sure, sure. I'm going to do my best to try to keep it short because. I think understanding what a classical education is, is complicated because right. I think there's the philosophy of a classical education and that can be different from the operationalization of the philosophy, right? So what that actually looks like might be different from what the idea of the education is. So I'll give you the philosophy. I'll give you some potential ways that that could be put into practice. Um, so first, 
they center their curriculum on three main ideas, right? Virtuous character, critical thinking skills, and exceptional community stewardship. I'm pulling this language directly from the Loveland Classical School website. So nothing what I'm saying here is interpretive. Um, They give lots of ideas about what those things mean. But essentially, at its core, it means who am I and how am I living like this virtuous life as they study early philosophers to kind of gain insight into this virtuous life, right? As you progress, you're studying more modern philosophers, in particular American philosophers and Western philosophers, as you mentioned. So it's not uncommon to learn lots about Greek uh, philosophy, lots about Roman philosophy, and then lots of modern uh, Western philosophy. So you might grapple with somebody like John Locke, you know, or Alexis de Tocqueville, these sort of like... uh, cornerstone um like western philosophical people and this question that you're grappling with right is what does it mean to live well and to flourish in the world that's that's what you're trying to get at okay you're using you're using critical thinking skills in order to grapple with that question and in order to understand what that means in in your life um, and then exceptional community stewardship is the area that I found maybe the least information on, uh, right. but essentially what I think that that means <laughs> is that it means that you're a member of a community and uh, in particular, um, from them, like the U S citizenry as a whole, and, and you're kind of asking yourself like what it means to be a member of a community and like how do I participate as a citizen of the United States um so th- so that's kind of like your real rudimentary understanding of the uh curriculum for a level for the level of classical school so how does that work when I, I, sorry how was my security system going off um no you're good you're good um so how does that work when we, one of my concerns as a parent, and I have two two daughters in the, the school district and a granddaughter who just moved down to Loveland, um, but was mm-hmm. in the school district, um, is that, you know, they weren't going to really tackle some very, what I believe are fundamental educational issues, um, such as evolution, um, such as, mm-hmm. um, you know, dealing with, with controversial topics like um, slavery and such, you know, the, the, the dog whistle is critical uh, or um, what is it? CRT, the uh, critical, critical race. race theory. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you think that's going to, how does that work with you saying that they're coming from a classical education background and, and dealing mm-hmm. with these critical thinking issues, but yet they're, they're leaving large segments of very relevant cultural importance kind of off the table. Yeah, I think I had that question just the same as you, you know, which is they have this policy in their guidebook or whatever that is available for anyone to check out um, on their website. And it, it is a literal controversial issues policy, right? And they say that controversial issues are issues that evoke emotion that require like interpretive thinking skills and that, um, 
maybe don't have a, a, a clear right or wrong sort of answer. Um, and and my question around that is really, I think what you're asking is, how do you promote critical thinking skills and not grapple with controversial issues? Right. You know, your daughters, however old they are, are living in a world that is just peppered with controversial issues all the time, whether they're on TikTok or Twitter or uh, Snapchat, I guess, or they're just reading. <laughs> just period, right? They're going to encounter a controversial issue yeah. inevitably. Like it's going to happen whether we want it to or not. Part of our right? life experience. That's right. And so my question for the operationalization of this curriculum would be, how do you help young people really get at um, these controversial issues in a way that feels comfortable to them? Um and I think a little bit about school as as a safe place where students can explore ideas and feel like they can figure out what they how they think and feel about things with support of of adults and peers, right? Because that's what schools are sort of designed to do. If you eliminate the need to uh, explore a controversial issue. Um, in school, then you're eliminating this safe place for young people to do that kind of exploration. So where are they going to do it is my question. Is it going to be on TikTok where they might express a view that is, say, fundamentally racist? And then they get, I don't know what happens to them after that, but probably not good things. Right. Or is it, or is it maybe in a classroom where it is problematic, but you have an adult there that says, "Hey, Jason, like you know that thing that you said. Here's what's going on and why that's not okay. And like, let's talk about how we can make an approach that's different next time, so you're not, you know, making other people feel like they don't belong in this space. And with so you remove that safety net, and you just end up with kids out there in the world doing things that have exceptional repercussions without support um, and without a a sounding board to help them figure out what's good and what's right in the world. I actually find the controversial issue clause in the policy to be a really significant departure from the the idea of having a virtuous character and the idea of critically thinking about that. Um, I don't know. I I don't quite understand how they're going to align those things together. The, one of the other concerns I have is, um, you know, I have no problems with, you know, having a, a private religious school. I, I do <laughs> think that, especially in our situation, taking taxpayer funds that should go to the public school, my thought process, um, and, and putting them into what I feel, at least from a, a peripheral view, is, is, you know, largely a religious uh, education. It's going to be housed in a local church. You know, one of the board members yep. is a pastor. It seems like um, it just. It, I don't know if that's the the best allocation and the best. Um, you know, not that I I'm against religious schools. If that's what sure sure doing, that's the education they want for their kids. Um, you know, it just seems to me that that that's part of the mix. And and you know, there's a reason mm-hmm. we have kind of the separation between church and state. And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think 
you're venturing down a path that's very familiar to me. And I uh, have lots of similar feelings about that, right? I do agree fundamentally in the separation of church and state in the, in the United States. And I think it's a critical founding principle of our democracy. Um, I think there's always pushback about how that exists, you know, and like what that means. Um, I think the Supreme Court is hearing uh, one of those uh, cases right now around uh, um, the creation of a website by uh, an artist, you know, and I, so I think that there's like, yeah, it's in Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I think that there's really um, a delicate line to, to kind of trod there. But for schools, I uh, 100% agree that you know um, we shouldn't be funding uh, we shouldn't be funding school options that have a direct link between a specific religion and um, and learning and functioning of that school. What I think is challenging about the level and classical school model is it doesn't proclaim to be a religious school. It simply has the over or undertones of religiosity built into what it's doing. So it's very difficult to kind of pinpoint to say like this right here, you know, this is a religious tone, um, but it's not, it doesn't say that it is a religious tone, right? So like this idea of a virtuous character is certainly has religious tones to it, but they don't say in their promotional materials or what have you that we're talking about a virtuous Christian character, even though that's what the tone strikes as, right? So you have, a again, with this delicate line, I think it's difficult to say that LCS is a cla- in a classical school model is a religious model, but it's also difficult to not say that. <laughs> It is. I think like there are specific words that they use within their model description that um, I associate with, uh, let's say, Christianity, but but they don't say those things specifically. So while I support what you're saying, that the separation of church and state is important, funding of, uh, you know, any sort of religious schools with taxpayer dollars is is, uh, not okay. This Well, we're not, you know, promoting Christian values. We're just promoting values, right? Uh, so, yeah, that's my take on that. <laughs> One of the other topics I wanted to talk with you about specifically, and this is kind of right in your wheelhouse, is the qualifications that are required for someone to be a, a uh, you know, a, basically a teacher. They have a different set of terminology for it. Um, but, you know, in, in the public school system, you have to be a licensed licensed to be a school teacher. You have to go through a certain amount of base education in that particular field. Um, and uh, that doesn't seem to be the case here. What are your thoughts on yeah. on just um, the way they have it set up with the qualifications necessary to become a teacher or administrator at this this model of school? Yeah, I I struggle with this a little bit because um, I do believe that there are inherent flaws in our teacher preparation programming as it exists in the United States right now. Um, as uh, I mentioned before we started this podcast, I, I did a, or I uh, co-hosted a, a podcast of my own called Rethinking ED. 
I will <laughs> I will be certain you gotta love podcasting. Um yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I definitely will if it's okay with you, I'd love to put a link into the the podcast cool. series. So people if they want to dig in more and, and find what you're saying intriguing, want you know, they can find you. And I so I bring this up because and thank you for that, because we did a we did a series on teacher preparation programs where we explored a whole bunch of different um, preparation programs and what those look like. So I do think that there's room for growth in teacher preparation programs. Don't get me wrong, right? But I do also think that um, having no credentialing uh, requirements for a school is problematic in the opposite direction. You know, and you see this most clearly, in my opinion, at universities. So, a university professor is required to for the most part, have a terminal degree in their field. So I'm a biologist. I've got a PhD in biology. I don't, but in this example, right. <laughs> I've got a PhD in biology and I know a lot about biology. So I'm going to teach this class on biology, right? And I know a lot, bi a lot about biology, so I must be a good teacher is the correlation there. But the real correlation, the, but that correlation isn't real. Just because you know a lot about biology doesn't mean you know a lot about teaching pedagogy or, you know, fundamental uh, belonging of students in classrooms, the things that are necessary. Um, and I think you can get away with that at a university because universities emphasize independent learning. So, you know, kids are expected or students are expected to go back to their dorm room and read the biology textbook and teach themselves, you know, how molecules work. Um, but at a high school or an elementary school or a middle school, the background in teaching is fundamental. And that's why you see even um, elementary educators study elementary education for years before being dropped into a first grade classroom. Because first grade dynamics are complicated. You know, you have daughters yourself when they were... Yeah, when they were younger, it is so complicated. So um, so I think that if you are uh, allowing just sort of anybody to come and be a teacher, you're setting yourself up for failure. I say all of that also to say there are lots of excellent educators out there who don't have teaching credentials, who could be tremendous school assets, but aren't maybe interested in jumping through the hoops and the cost of teacher preparation programs. So I think that there's like a delicate balance there. What I would want to see from the LCS model would be a clear set of guidelines about what exactly we're looking for when we're hiring folks that maybe don't have a teaching credential. And I'll add one more kind of nugget to this is if you go and you look at reviews of the LCS school that's down in Loveland, right? you can see pretty consistently parents saying the folks that are in charge of classrooms in this school don't really know what they're doing. It happens over and over and over again. And, um, and to me, that that's a pretty significant red flag. If you're not, if you're hiring people that don't have a background in teaching, especially for a new school, look, I've started schools in my career. It's hard work. And if you are, um, unschooled in the uh, in the experience of being a teacher, then it's going to be even harder 
And I can't imagine a situation in which they're setting themselves up for success if they're not um, requiring their teachers to have some sort of credential, which is unclear if they will or not. Right. Oh, I did it again. You, um, <laughs> the the other major concern, which is kind of hitting on all the topics I want to discuss with you, but I also want to give you an opportunity to, to bring up any topics that maybe we we had had a chance to touch on, or you just well you wanted to. But before we get to that, um, you know, I know that you know I have I have lived a different life. I come from a different culture than maybe a lot of the the people who have resided in Estes Park, and my daughters have grown mm-hmm. up in that. And just based on the entry requirements that my daughters would not be able to become students there because they have things like piercings because they grew up, you know, in a piercing and tattoo studio and, and, you know, they have different colored hair. They have, you know, they're very expressive in in how they dress, you know, they're, they're, they're my kids, you know, so the the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. (laughs) Uh, And, um, you know, so I know that, you know, at least from my point of view, um, that's going to cut down on diversity, which I think is 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 part of the the education experience. Is you know you have to be able to deal with people that are different than you, that you know come from different backgrounds, and kind of figure out how to get along. Um, yeah, I think yeah. especially with where we are as a country right now, that's more important than ever. That we need to be getting to know people that we may not, you know, normally get to know in our everyday lives. And I think this may, may hinder that. Yeah. I think whether we like it or not, um, I think it's the Brookings institution. Let me just pull up the, the citation here really quick. Yeah, so the Brookings Institution released a report um, in 2020, right? In their report, um, they talk about uh, the growing number of non-white people in the United States, right? They say four out of 10 uh, Americans already identify as non-white. And that number, according to Brookings, is is just going to grow. And And I see it as like, the growing number of uh, mixed students that we see in schools, the growing number of um, of just generally students of color across the board is something that is happening. Not it's going to happen; it already is happening, right? And so I don't, I don't necessarily see how you can create a school model that is built on ideas of exclusion when um the world is moving toward a place that needs more inclusion uh and whether and it's whether we like it or not i'm not personally i'm very much in favor of a more diverse workspace of a more diverse school environment of a more diverse whatever maybe some listeners are like i don't know how i feel about that Maybe some people, and we've seen this in the United States, that some people are like, no, thanks. But regardless of whether those people think that way, it's happening, right? So so I think the fundamental question for me is, are we creating a more inclusive opportunity for students, for young people to 
engage in education that is more than just, you know, Aristotle and Plato? And are we going to do that? Because the world that they're going to enter when they leave the Loveland Classical School is not necessarily going to look like the person that they see in the mirror every day, right? So this process of inclusion is one that is a requirement for our young people to get used to, to figure out how to make mistakes and recover and figure out how to, you know, uh, understand other people's experiences um, as a person of color in the United States. It is a challenge to understand those experiences. And if you can get started on that a little bit earlier, when you're younger, you're going to have a much more empathetic existence. You're going to have a much more, I think, values-driven uh, life. And frankly, this is where I kind of struggle with the model is that if you're going to be an exceptional community steward and your community is mostly made up of people of color, then you need to have exposure and be uh, like entrenched in understanding of the experiences of those people. You need to have uh, you know, just get into conversations with people that don't look like you, that have different experiences than you. And I think that the Loveland Classical School model is creating a policy and creating a, a, an environment that is fundamentally exclusive of all of those things. Yeah, if you're not, low income. Yeah, I was going to say not just race, not just, not just uh, uh, you know, what color are you? But I know that from my own experience here in Estes Park, because I have teenagers and, you know, they are who they are and all their friends are, you know, interacting. And it's, it is a diverse community for being as, as small of a community as we are. You know, we have a lot of members of our, our student body who are, you know, dealing with LGBTQ plus issues and trans issues. And I just, you know, I, I worry that opportunity and education may be blunted or then stunted by this kind of exclusive uh model that they've got yeah yeah i want i 100 worry about that too and um i think it's doing young people a disservice that's my biggest worry is that we're trying to uh exist in a world um that is different than what it has been in the past and and the more we do disservice to young people in that process the worse off we're going to end up we're going to end up with more um potential for violence, more, uh, you know, fundamentally racist feelings amongst people. Those, those things are all a problem for a functional democracy and for the well-being of young people. Also, they run contrary to what uh, LCS is talking about. A virtuous character at, at its core means a life of flourishing for yourself and for other people, Right. A virtuous character means I care about you, Jason, because we're having this conversation and I want you to flourish because your flourishing means I flourish, right? It's inseparable. So if we're not supporting that, then we're supporting this like me, me, me kind of attitude, right? The virtuous character becomes how can I get ahead? How can I whatever? And and so that I think is actually in, in uh, you know, divergence from the the model that LCS is producing. 
Absolutely. So is there anything that you would like to discuss? So we kind of hit on the topics that I, I wanted <laughs> to talk about. Um, is there anything uh, that you want to talk about that, that is on your mind in this, this subject? Sure. I, I do think that there's a couple of things that are really important to mention. You know, there's this narrative that's going around right now that Estes Park School District is a quote unquote failing school district. And I think that's really important really to. It's really not. No, it's no, really I mean, not. the it's, numbers show you that. <laughs> if you look at the perfect. growth numbers, that, that's right. It's not a perfect school district, but hey, look, we're a small school district with, you know, in, in this small town that's trying to do something that is uh, maybe a little bit different. You know, we're trying to do some really cool things with projects in, in the school district. We're trying to do some cool things with uh, STEM. And, and those things are all super promising. And our growth scores as a district, and all this data is publicly available, right? You can go to the Colorado Department of Education's website. You can look at their school district dashboard, and you can see that Estes Park is, for example, it ranks first out of uh, eight schools in the uh, TSD and EPSD districts uh, in math growth. That's really incredible. Yeah. You know, it, uh, it, so, so I think that this narrative about it being a failing school is, a, is totally a red herring. Like, yeah, it's just propaganda. Folks, if you're like, it really is this propaganda. And I think the biggest piece of propaganda that I listened to at, at our last board meeting was this um, idea that the ranking of the school district has dwindled over time. Um, and I want to I want to address that specifically because I, I was like, huh, that's interesting. I, I want to dig into that a little bit. So I went over to this website, schooldigger.com, very right. popular website. And I don't want to I don't want to promote that website, but whatever <laughs> folks visit it. And uh, they um, they rank schools only based on test scores only. Right. Which I, I think is all sorts of problematic. I also find rankings fundamentally problematic. So, you know, just just so everybody's aware of my positionality here. Test score ranking, absolutely problematic. Rankings in general, absolutely problematic, right? Um, so I'll give you I'll give you an idea of what's going on here. So the website provides rankings for um 102 districts in the state of Colorado based on test scores. But 84 additional districts in Colorado don't pro- provide any kind of test score data, so they don't rank them. Right. And so in in the meeting, the individual who brought up this information was like, Estes Park's rankings are really low, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, that you know seems strange. And so I realized that they're looking at the ranking out of the 102 districts that provide test scores, not out of the 186 districts total that um, are in the state of Colorado. So when we look at the uh, 186 districts, we see that Estes Park, small town of 6,500, doing its thing, is in the top 40% of schools in the state. Yeah. That to me is where our – now, could we be better? Certainly, right? Always. Um, But I think that that's where where we need to realize that, wait a minute, maybe these numbers aren't what what we think that they are and that they should be. So um, I, I had to bring that up. I think that the numbers game is really, uh, really challenging. 
people like clarity. They like a 4.5 out of five stars. They like a number three is better than number four kind of experience. But I think that if, if the residents and the families of Estes were to really look at what these numbers mean, they would realize, oh, wait a minute, our school district's pretty okay here. Yeah, and I think it does a it does a disservice to our educators here who are doing a really great job. I mean, again, they're not perfect. I mean, I have had the school sure. district. I butted heads with the school district with some of my coverage, and but sure. and I can't tell you how appreciative I am that we have the people working in our district the way they are with my kids because yeah. I see a real difference in my kids' life, and I think using numbers like that just you know it, it's disheartening for the people that are already in a bad situation trying to navigate, you know, modern life with pandemics and and kind of our country turning upside down and still teach our kids in a a real way. And I'm really proud of, you know, the district and and where it is today. 100%. I couldn't be happier with the superintendent's work. I know the last superintendent left and it was a little bit of a whatever kind of situation. Um, and I think the board is fundamentally doing some good work. You know, public education has been around for uh, hundred some odd years. I think I wrote down the actual number of my dissertation, but just off the top of my head, a hundred, whatever, hundred, whatever years. And we've been trying to do work here in one of the most complicated, uh, like institutions in America. You know, if you're if you're going to rank institutions in terms of complexity in the United States, right? Federal, state municipal government complexity is off the charts. Healthcare system, off the charts. Education system, not far behind, right? It is very complex. And mm-hmm. so trying to create some sort of change here is slow going. It's not always 100% what everybody wants all the time. And so because of that, you really got to get into like, is am I happy with what's going on at the kid's school? Am I happy about the teachers that I have? And I think if you ask most parents and most kids that uh, question, I think they would they would say yes. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Mike, I want to take the time. <laughs> I told you I was going to use it. Um, just take the time to say thanks, man. Thanks for for you know going and and plugging into the the school board meeting and just yeah really breaking things down because you know what you're talking about and and like you said, it's a complicated issue. You know, school boards are not easy to understand as even as a parent, you know, as someone in the community that isn't a part of it, um, it, it kind of becomes Latin to a certain degree. And I sure. think, you know, understanding that is going to help everybody, you know, breaking things down in the way you did. So I just want to say thanks for, you know, taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and have a conversation about it. Jason, it's been a pleasure. I uh, just want to put a one plug in there for parents out there. If y'all are listening to this episode and you're thinking, man, uh, what he's talking about, if I don't have LCS as an option, how do I get more choice, right? And I I think one thing that you could advocate for is a school within a school. And this is already kind of happening in Estes Park. You've got this really great group of teachers that's doing mostly project-based learning. And so what they've said is to parents, hey, do you want to opt into this? If you want to opt into this, this is what this means, right? And if you don't, then cool, you can keep doing the thing you were doing. Schools within schools are super popular models within uh, around the country. And there are ways for you to create 
additional oversight that allows the board, the school board, which we elect, which we put our trust into, to kind of oversee what's going on. They don't take away money from the great the greater school district, and they allow teacher certification to be a requirement, and they allow for some choice. Um, some schools within schools are like half day models. Some schools within schools are full day models. Um, but it would be a really terrific option if parents are super interested in exploring what a school choice look like here in Estes that wouldn't necessarily uh, fundamentally like uh, interrupt, um, you know, $800,000 budgetary concerns and, and also would provide parents with some additional oversight into um, and residents like you and I into what's going on in the school. So parents, you're looking, you're looking to increase your choice for your kid. Think about how to advocate for a school within a school. You can just Google school within a school models in the United States. You can see they exist all over. It's uh, not something new. You know, and it can be a real safe and kind of progressive way to have your voice heard in um, in also a way that allows for for solving some of the problems that we brought up here today in this conversation. Sure, and real quick, um, you know, if if there are community members that are share concerns similar to ours, um, you know, mm-hmm. that that are worried and and would prefer not to see that, what would you say is the best way for them to? to have their voice heard and have it matter in this decision-making process. Yeah, definitely show up to any kind of Estes Spark uh, board meetings that you can come to. They're a rollicking good time, lots of good business being discussed. I think that's really important. You can write letters to your board members. And I think importantly, you can also talk to your kids' teachers. You know, um, as a teacher myself, I love talking with parents. And sometimes our conversations don't, we don't always see eye to eye on some of the things I'm trying to do. And, um, but that's okay. I, I want to hear from parents. And if that doesn't work, then talk to the school's principal and see, you know, how you can better have your voice heard within, um, within the school that you're in. Uh, I think that those are some really appropriate ways. And if there's not, if you don't feel like those avenues are open to you, I think you can go the talk to the board member route. Or talk to your teacher or your principal and say, hey, I'm really feeling like I want to have more of a voice here. How can we figure out how to do that together? I think that those conversations are the kinds of conversations that educators really love. So I hope that answers your question. It does. And, and I just want to echo great, great. that and just say, folks, if, if, if you are concerned about this, you know, the, the decision ultimately is not in our hands. But we can at least be heard. And the most direct route for doing that, I think, is going to these board meetings. I know that's the last thing in the world you want to do at the end of your day. <laughs> um, trust me, I know I'm there. Um, I would never yeah, yeah. do a school board meeting if I hadn't had to cover it writing for the paper. But it's important. It's part of the process. It's how our t- democracy works. And you, you, that's the way to get heard. So please go check out the meetings. Um, I've got listings of all the meetings that are coming up. Um, and have happened um, so that you can see when might work for your schedule. I'll, I'll repost that onto this, uh, the show notes on this as well. So, all right, Mike. Well, thank you once again so much for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. And if you ever want to come back to, to talk about things in, outside of the school district, you just let me know. I'd love, awesome. love it, Jason. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity. 
All right, folks. I think that was probably the most important, most informational interview um, that I've done on the school board issue and all of the topics relating to it. So if you feel strongly about what's happening with with the school board decision to upcoming decision as to whether or not we should allow a charter school going to, to come into Estes Valley and take away from the funding of our public schools one way or the other like just get this out share it out again I'm not on social media anymore um, <laughs> I'm so glad to be done with social media I cannot tell you but if you are and you feel that this was just a great interview uh, as I do, then go ahead and share it out because I think this is not only is this one of my favorite interviews from the year of 2022 that I've done on the podcast, but I think it's the most important one when it comes to specifically dealing with the issues of this upcoming decision and the future of education here in the Estes Valley. All right, folks, that's going to be it for the Colorado Switchblade. Um, Time to get back to the grindstone. The holidays are now over, starting a new year, and uh, man, I gotta, I gotta get a chapter ready for my writers group tonight. We've got a great writers group here in Estes, and uh, every Monday, and uh, over the holidays, I kind of, not that I slacked off on writing, I just slacked off on going to group because I was so busy with things, and and counterbalance with I also wanted to just relax. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Colorado Switchblade. As always, I'm your host, Jason Van Tatenhove, and I'll talk with you again soon.